0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're starting a new book. It's definitely another one that's going to take us a while. The first chapter is going to be split into two readings and that's going to be pretty typical for a lot of this book. More importantly, this is a book that has a lot more intense material and specifically quotes from people giving accounts of the specific conditions being dealt with, So, I am going to flag some content warnings, and I suspect this will come up again with this book. For this week, at least, I will put a content warning for slavery and lots of abuse related to slavery, abuse related to pregnancy, rape, death, torture, racism, and some blood coming into some of the descriptions too. I hope that at least gives you an impression of the kind of stuff being brought up in this chapter. It will most commonly be when I am quoting something, so you'll hear me saying quote before any of these descriptions begin. But these topics are coming out throughout the chapter, because it is extremely about them. And I will not be using the n-word at any point, and will just substitute it with saying the n-word whenever it comes up, because it does come up again in direct quotations. Let's get started with this first reading of our new book. Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis Chapter 1 The Legacy of Slavery Standards for a New Womanhood When the influential scholar Ulrich B. Phillips declared in 1918 that slavery in the Old South had impressed upon African savages and their native-born descendants, the glorious stamp of civilization. He set the stage for a long and passionate debate. As the decades passed and the debate raged on, one historian after another confidently professed to have deciphered the real meaning of the peculiar institution. But amidst all this scholarly activity, the special situation of the female slave remained unpenetrated, the ceaseless arguments about her sexual promiscuity or her matriarchal proclivities obscured, much more than they illuminated, the condition of black women during slavery. Herbert Aptheker remains one of the few historians who attempted to establish a more realistic basis for the understanding of the female slave. Footnote 2 During the 1970s, the slavery debate reemerged with renewed vigor. Eugene Genovese, published Roll Jordan Roll, The World the Slaves Made, footnote 3. John Blessingame's The Slave Community, footnote 4, appeared, as did Fogel and Engerman's ill-conceived Time on the Cross, footnote 5, and Herbert Gutman's monumental Black Family in Slavery and Freedom, footnote 6. Responding to this rejuvenated debate, Stanley Elkins decided it was time to publish an expanded edition of his 1959 study, Slavery. Footnote seven. Conspicuously absent from this flurry of publications is a book expressly devoted to slave women. Those of us who have anxiously awaited a serious study of the black woman during slavery remain, so far, disappointed. It has been equally disappointing to discover that, with the exception of the traditionally debatable questions of promiscuity versus marriage and forced versus voluntary sex with white men, scant attention has been focused on women by the authors of these new books. The most enlightening of all these recent studies is Herbert Gutman's investigation of the black family. In furnishing documentary evidence that the family's vitality proved stronger than the dehumanizing rigors of slavery, Gutman has dethroned the black matriarchy thesis, popularized by David Moynihan et al. in 1965. Yet, since his observations about slave women are generally designed to confirm their wifely propensities, the implication is easily drawn that they differed from their white counterparts only to the extent that their domestic aspirations were thwarted by the exigencies of the slave system. According to Gutman, Although institutionalized slave norms accorded women a great degree of premarital sexual freedom, they eventually settled into permanent marriages and built families based as much on their husband's input as on their own. Gutman's cogent and well-documented arguments against the matriarchy thesis are extremely valuable, but how much more powerful his book might have been had he concretely explored the multidimensional role of black women within the family, and within the slave community as a whole. If and when a historian sets the record straight on the experiences of enslaved black women, she or he will have performed an inestimable service. It is not for the sake of historical accuracy alone that such a study should be conducted, for lessons can be gleaned from the slave era which will shed light upon black women's and all women's current battle for emancipation. As a layperson, I can only propose some tentative ideas which might possibly guide a re-examination of the history of black women during slavery. Proportionately, more black women have always worked outside their homes than have their white sisters. Footnote 9. The enormous space that work occupies in black women's lives today follows a pattern established during the very earliest days of slavery. As slaves, compulsory labor overshadowed every aspect of women's existence. It would seem, therefore, that the starting point for any exploration of black women's lives under slavery would be an appraisal of their role as workers. The slave system defined black people as chattel. Since women, no less than men, were viewed as profitable labor units, they might as well have been genderless as far as the slaveholders were concerned. In the words of one scholar, quote, The slave woman was first a full time worker for her owner, and only incidentally a wife, mother, and homemaker. Footnote 10. Judged by the evolving 19th century ideology of femininity, which emphasized women's roles as nurturing mothers and gentle companions and housekeepers for their husbands, black women were practically anomalies. Though black women enjoyed few of the dubious benefits of the ideology of womanhood, it is sometimes assumed that the typical female slave was a house servant, either a cook, maid, or mammy for the children in the big house. Uncle Tom and Sambo have always found faithful companions in Aunt Jemima and the Black Mammy, stereotypes which presume to capture the essence of the black woman's role during slavery. As is so often the case, the reality is actually the diametrical opposite of the myth. Like the majority of slave men, slave women, for the most part, were field workers. While a significant proportion of border state slaves may have been house servants, slaves in the deep south, the real home of the slaveocracy, were predominantly agricultural workers. Around the middle of the 19th century, seven out of eight slaves, men and women alike, were field workers. Footnote. Eleven, just as the boys were sent to the fields when they came of age, so too were the girls assigned to work the soil, pick the cotton, cut the cane, harvest the tobacco. An old woman interviewed during the 1930s described her childhood initiation to fieldwork on an Alabama cotton plantation. Quote, We had old ragged huts made out of poles, and some of the cranks chinked up with mud and moss, and some of them wasn't. We didn't have no good beds just scaffolds nailed up to the wall out of poles and the old ragged bedding thrown on them. That sure was hard sleeping, but even that felt good to our weary bones after them long hard days' work in the field. I tended to the children when I was a little gal and tried to clean the house just like old miss tells me to. And then as soon as I was ten years old, old master he say, get this here n-word to the cotton patch. End quote. Footnote 12. Jenny Proctor's experience was typical. For most girls and women, as for most boys and men, it was hard labor in the fields from sunup to sundown. Where work was concerned, strength and productivity under the threat of the whip outweighed considerations of sex. In this sense, the oppression of women was identical to the oppression of men. But women suffered in different ways as well, for they were victims of sexual abuse and other barbarous mistreatment that could only be inflicted on women. Expediency governed the slaveholders' posture toward female slaves. When it was profitable to exploit them as if they were men, they were regarded, in effect, as genderless. But when they could be exploited, punished, and repressed in ways suited only for women, they were locked into their exclusively female roles. When the abolition of the international slave trade began to threaten the expansion of the young, cotton-growing industry, the slaveholding class was forced to rely on natural reproduction as the surest method of replenishing and increasing the domestic slave population. Thus a premium was placed on the slave woman's reproductive capacity. During the decades preceding the civil war, black women came to be increasingly appraised for their fertility, or for the lack of it. She who was potentially the mother of 10, 12, 14 or more became a coveted treasure indeed this did not mean, however, that as mothers, black women enjoyed a more respected status than they enjoyed as workers. Ideological exaltation of motherhood, as popular as it was during the 19th century, did not extend to slaves. In fact, in the eyes of the slaveholders, slave women were not mothers at all, they were simply instruments guaranteeing the growth of the slave labor force. They were breeders. Animals whose monetary value could be precisely calculated in terms of their ability to multiply their numbers. Since slave women were classified as breeders as opposed to mothers, their infant children could be sold away from them like calves from cows. One year after the importation of Africans was halted, a Southern Carolina court ruled that female slaves had no legal claims whatever on their children. Consequently, according to this ruling, children could be sold away from their mothers at any age, because the young of slaves stand on the same footing as other animals. As females, slave women were inherently vulnerable to all forms of sexual coercion. If the most violent punishments of men consisted in floggings and mutilations, women were flogged and mutilated, as well as raped. Rape, in fact, Was an uncamouflaged expression of the slaveholder's economic mastery and the overseer's control over black women as workers. The special abuses inflicted on women thus facilitated the ruthless economic exploitation of their labor. The demands of this exploitation caused slave owners to cast aside their orthodox sexist attitudes, except for purposes of repression. If black women were hardly women in the accepted sense, the slave system also discouraged male supremacy in black men. Because husbands and wives, fathers and daughters, were equally subjected to the slave master's absolute authority, the promotion of male supremacy among the slaves might have prompted a dangerous rupture in the chain of command. Moreover, since black women as workers could not be treated as the weaker sex, or the housewife, black men could not be candidates for the figure of family head, and certainly not for family provider. After all, men, women, and children alike were all providers for the slaveholding class. In the cotton, tobacco, corn, and sugarcane fields, women worked alongside their men. In the words of an ex-slave, quote, the bell rings at four o'clock in the morning, and they have half an hour to get ready. Men and women start together, and the women must work as steadily as the men and perform the same tasks as the men. End quote. Footnote 14. Most slave owners established systems of calculating their slaves' yield in terms of the average rates of productivity they demanded. Children, thus, were frequently rated as quarter-hands. Women, it was generally assumed, were full-hands, unless they had been expressly assigned to be breeders or sucklers in which case they sometimes ranked to less than full hands. Footnote 15 Slave owners naturally sought to ensure that their breeders would bear children as often as biologically possible, but they never went so far as to exempt pregnant women and mothers with infant children from work in the fields. While many mothers were forced to leave their infants lying on the ground near the area where they had worked, some refused to leave them unattended, and tried to work at the normal pace with their babies on their backs. An ex-slave described such a case on the plantation where he lived. Quote, One young woman did not, like the others, leave her child at the end of the row, but had contrived a sort of rude knapsack made of a piece of coarse linen cloth in which she fastened her child, which was very young, upon her back, and in this way carried it all day and performed her task at the hoe with the other people. End quote. Footnote 16. On other plantations, the women left their infants in the care of small children or older slaves who were not able to perform hard labor in the fields. Unable to nurse their infants regularly, they enjoyed the pain caused by their swollen breasts. In one of the most popular slave narratives of the period, Moses Grandy related the miserable predicament of slave mothers. On the estate I am speaking of, those women who had sucking children suffered much from their breasts becoming full of milk, the infants being left at home. They therefore could not keep up with the other hands. I have seen the overseer beat them with raw hide, so that the blood and milk flew mingled from their breasts. End quote. Footnote 17. Pregnant women were not only compelled to do the normal agricultural work, they could also expect the floggings workers normally received if they failed to fulfill their day's quota, or if they impudently protested their treatment. Quote, a woman who gives offence in the field, and is largely in a family way, is compelled to lie down over a hole, made to receive her corpulency, and is flogged with a whip or beat with a paddle, which has holes in it. At every stroke comes a blister. One of my sisters was so severely punished in this way, that labour was brought on, and the child was born in the field. This very overseer, Mr. Brooks, killed in this manner a girl named mary her father and mother were in the field at the time End quote. footnote 18 on those plantations and farms where pregnant women were dealt with more leniently it was seldom on humanitarian grounds it was simply that slaveholders appreciated the value of a slave child born alive in the same way that they appreciated the value of a newborn calf or colt When timid attempts at industrialization were made in the pre-Civil War South, slave labor complemented, and frequently competed with, free labor. Slave-owning industrialists used men, women, and children alike, and when planters and farmers hired out their slaves, they found women and children in as great demand as men. Footnote 19. Slave women and children comprised large proportions of the workforces in most slave-employing textile, hemp, and tobacco factories. Slave women and children sometimes worked at heavy industries, such as sugar refining and rice milling. Other heavy industries, such as transportation and lumbering, used slave women and children to a considerable extent. End quote. Footnote 20. Women were not too Feminine to work in coal mines, in iron foundries, or to be lumberjacks and ditch diggers. When the Santee Canal was constructed in North Carolina, slave women were a full 50% of the labor force. Footnote 21. Women also worked on the Louisiana levees, and many of the southern railroads still in use today were constructed, in part, by female slave labor. Footnote 22. The use of slave women as substitutes for beasts of burden, to pull trams in the southern mines, footnote 23, is reminiscent of the horrendous utilization of white female labor in England, as described in Karl Marx's Capital. In England, women are still occasionally used instead of horses for hauling canal boats, because the labor required to produce horses and machines is an accurately known quantity, while that required to maintain the women of the surplus population is below all calculation. End quote. Footnote 24. Like their British counterparts, the southern industrialists made no secret of the reasons motivating them to employ women in their enterprises. Female slaves were a great deal more profitable than either free workers or male slaves. They cost less to capitalize and to maintain than prime males. Footnote 25. Required by the master's demands to be as masculine in the performance of their work as their men, black women must have been profoundly affected by their experiences during slavery. Some, no doubt, were broken and destroyed. Yet the majority survived, and, in the process, acquired qualities considered taboo by the 19th century ideology of womanhood. A traveler during that period observed the slave crew in Mississippi returning home from the fields, and described the group as including Forty of the largest and strongest women I ever saw together. They were all in a simple uniform dress, of a bluish check stuff. Their legs and feet were bare, they carried themselves loftily, each having a hoe over the shoulder, and walking with free, powerful swing, like chasseurs on the march. End quote. Footnote twenty six. While it is hardly likely that these women were expressing pride in the work they performed under the ever-present threat of the whip, they must have been aware nonetheless of their enormous power, their ability to produce and to create. For as Marx put it, quote, Labor is the living, shaping, fire. It represents the impermanence of things, their temporality. End quote. Footnote 27 it is possible, of course, that this traveler's observations were tainted by racism of the paternalistic variety. But if not, then perhaps these women had learned to extract from the oppressive circumstances of their lives the strength they needed to resist the daily dehumanization of slavery. Their awareness of their endless capacity for hard work may have imparted to them a confidence in their ability to struggle for themselves, their families, and their people. When the tentative pre Civil War forays into factory work gave way to an aggressive embrace of industrialization in the United States, it robbed many white women of the experience of performing productive labor. Their spinning wheels were rendered obsolete by the textile factories. Their candle making paraphernalia became museum pieces, like so many of the other tools which had previously assisted them to produce the articles required by their families for survival. As the ideology of femininity, a byproduct of industrialization, was popularized and disseminated through the new ladies' magazines and romantic novels, white women came to be seen as inhabitants of a sphere totally severed from the realm of productive work. The cleavage between the home and the public economy, brought on by industrial capitalism, established female inferiority more firmly than ever before. Woman became synonymous in the prevailing propaganda with mother, and housewife, and both mother and housewife bore the fatal mark of inferiority. But among black female slaves, this vocabulary was nowhere to be found. The economic arrangements of slavery contradicted the hierarchical sexual roles incorporated in the new ideology. Male-female relations within the slave community could not, therefore, conform to the dominant ideological pattern. Much has been made of the slaveholders' definition of the black family as a matrilocal biological structure. Birth records on many plantations omitted the names of the fathers, listing only the children's mothers. And throughout the South, state legislatures adopted the principle of partus sequitur ventrum, the child follows the condition of the mother. These were the dictates of the slave owners, who fathered not a few slave children themselves, But were they also the norms according to which the slaves ordered their domestic relationships among themselves? Most historical and sociological examinations of the black family during slavery have simply assumed that the masters' refusal to acknowledge fatherhood among their slaves was directly translated into matriarchal family arrangement of the slaves' own making. The notorious 1965 government study on the negro family popularly known as the Moynihan Report, directly linked the contemporary social and economic problems of the black community to a putatively matriarchal family structure. Quote, in essence, wrote Daniel Moynihan, the Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure which, because it is out of line with the rest of the American society, seriously hinders the progress of the group as a whole and imposes a crushing burden on the Negro male and, in consequence, on a great many Negro women as well. End quote. Footnote 28. According to the reporter's thesis, the source of oppression was deeper than the racial discrimination that produced unemployment, shoddy housing, inadequate education, and substandard medical care. The root of oppression was described as a tangle of pathology, created by the absence of male authority among black people, The controversial finale of the Moynihan Report was a call to introduce male authority, meaning male supremacy of course, into the black family and the community at large. One of Moynihan's liberal supporters, the sociologist Lee Rainwater, took exception to the solutions recommended by the report. Footnote 29. Rainwater proposed instead jobs, higher wages, and other economic reforms. He even went so far as to encourage continued civil rights protests and demonstrations. But like most white sociologists, and some black ones as well, he reiterated the thesis that slavery had effectively destroyed the black family. As a result, black people were allegedly left with, quote, the mother-centered family, with its emphasis on the primacy of the mother-child relation and only tenuous ties to a man. End quote. Footnote 30. Today, he said, quote, Men often do not have real homes. They move about from one household where they have kinship or sexual ties to another. They live in flop houses and rooming houses. They spend their time in institutions. They are not household members in the only homes they have, the homes of their mothers and of their girlfriends. End quote. Footnote 31. Neither Moynihan nor Rainwater had invented the theory of the black family's internal deterioration under slavery. The pioneering work to support this thesis was done in the 1930s by the renowned black sociologist E. Franklin Frazier. In his book, The Negro Family, footnote 32, published in 1939, Frazier dramatically described the horrendous impact of slavery on black people but he underestimated their ability to resist its insinuations into the social life they forged for themselves. He also misinterpreted the spirit of independence and self-reliance black women necessarily developed, and thus deplored the fact that, quote, neither economic necessity nor tradition had instilled, in the black woman, the spirit of subordination to masculine authority. End quote. Footnote 33. Motivated by the controversy unleashed by the appearance of the Moynihan Report, as well as his doubts concerning the validity of Frazier's theory, Herbert Gutman initiated his research on the slave family. About ten years later, in 1976, he published his remarkable work, The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom. Footnote 34 Gutman's investigations uncovered fascinating evidence of a thriving and developing family during slavery. It was not the infamous matriarchal family he discovered, but rather one involving wife, husband, children, and frequently, other relatives, as well as adoptive kin. Dissociating himself from the questionable economic conclusions reached by Fogel and Engerman, who claim that slavery left most families intact, Gutman confirms that countless slave families were forcibly disrupted. The separation, through indiscriminate sales of husbands, wives, and children, was a terrifying hallmark of the North American variety of slavery. But, as he points out, the bonds of love and affection, the cultural norms governing family relations, and the overpowering desire to remain together survived the devastating onslaught of slavery. Footnote 35. On the basis of letters and documents, such as birth records retrieved from plantations, listing fathers as well as mothers, Gutman demonstrates not only that slaves adhered to strict norms regulating their familial arrangements, but that these norms differed from those governing the white family life around them. Marriage taboos, naming practices, and sexual mores, which, incidentally, sanctioned premarital intercourse, set slaves apart from their masters. Footnote 36. As they tried desperately and daily to maintain their family lives, Enjoying as much autonomy as they could seize, slave men and women manifested irrepressible talent in humanizing an environment designed to convert them into a herd of subhuman labor units. Quote, Everyday choices made by slave men and women, such as remaining with the same spouse for many years, naming or not naming the father of a child, taking as a wife a woman who had children by unnamed fathers, giving a newborn child the name of a father, an aunt or an uncle, or a grandparent, and dissolving an incompatible marriage, contradicted in behavior, not in rhetoric, the powerful ideology that viewed the slave as a perpetual child or a repressed savage. Their domestic arrangements and kin networks, together with the enlarged communities that flowed from these primordial ties, made it clear to their children that the slaves were not non-men and non-women. End quote. Footnote. 37. It is unfortunate that Gutman did not attempt to determine the actual position of women within the slave family. In demonstrating the existence of a complex family life encompassing husbands and wives alike, Gutman eliminated one of the main pillars on which the matriarchy argument has stood. However, he did not substantially challenge the complementary claim that where there were two parent families, the woman dominated the man. Moreover, As Gutman's own research confirms, social life in the slave quarters was largely an extension of family life. Thus, women's role within the family must have defined, to a great extent, their social status within the slave community as a whole. Most scholarly studies have interpreted slave family life as elevating the women and debasing the men, even when both mother and father were present. According to Stanley Elkins, for example, the mother's role, quote, loomed far larger for the slave child than that of the father. She controlled those few activities, household care, preparation of food, and rearing of children, that were left to the slave family. End quote. Footnote 38. The systematic designation of slave men as boys by the master was a reflection, according to Elkins, of their inability to execute their fatherly responsibilities. Kenneth Stamp, pursues this line of reasoning even further than Elkin's. The typical slave family was matriarchal in form, for the mother's role was far more important than the father's. Insofar as the family did have significance, it involved responsibilities which traditionally belonged to women, such as cleaning house, preparing food, making clothes, and raising children. The husband was at most his wife's assistant, her companion and her sex partner. He was often thought of as her possession. Mary's Tom, as was the cabin in which they lived. End quote. Footnote 39. It is true that domestic life took on an exaggerated importance in the social lives of slaves, for it did indeed provide them with the only space where they could truly experience themselves as human beings. Black women, for this reason, and also because they were workers just like their men, were not debased by their domestic functions in the way that white women came to be. Unlike their white counterparts, they could never be treated as mere housewives. But to go further and maintain that they consequently dominated their men is to fundamentally distort the reality of slave life. And that's it for our reading this week. We'll be finishing this chapter next week as we continue on through this book. If you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or comments, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find lots of other leftist podcasts about media at abnormalmapping.com. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medeas. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.